0: Good morning and welcome to worship this morning at Bethel Bible Church at the downtown campus. My name is Eric Barton. I saw some of you upstairs on the third floor and then I was able to negotiate the staircase to come down. I just learned negotiate. That's a new word for me. Maybe it is for you as well. <laughs> Sorry, Matthew. But I do want to welcome you to Bethel Bible Church in Tyler, Texas. for. Probably most of you, this is not your first time in a church. It may not even be your very first time in a church that is called Bethel Bible Church in East Texas. It may not even be the first time you've been at Bethel Bible Church in the downtown campus. But every August, every year, we like to re articulate and reiterate. Who we are and what we're doing here. Not exhaustively, not a full-blown, like, 90-minute classroom lecture, but it's good for us once a year for about oh, three or four weeks in a row to say, hey, listen, this is who we are. This is what we're doing here. This helps to explain and identify why we do some of the things that we do and how we do them and why we don't do some of the things that we don't do. So we say it all the time. What is it, what is it that we're trying to accomplish? What precisely are we trying to accomplish? It's been said a time or three, and I like it because it's true. Repetition is the mother of learning. So, Lord willing, we're going to talk about this briefly uh, through the month of August and little bits at a time so that hopefully by the time Labor Day rolls around, it will be kind of in the minds, hearts, and souls and memory of every person at Bethel so that if you could ask on the street, hey, tell me about your church. Who are you guys? What are you doing? I would love, my hope, my prayer, my expectation and aim would be that all of us could very succinctly say, this is what we're about, this is what the church is. So, start off this way, what actually is the church? A lot of people have a lot of different answers for what the church is. Usually it sort of circles around what the church does, but fundamentally at its essence and its nature. What is the church? The church is the new covenant community of the Spirit. It is the manifestation of the new covenant that the Old Testament longed for, looked forward to. Ezekiel talks about it, Isaiah talked about it, Jeremiah talked about it with great detail, the prophet Joel and Malachi all looked forward to a time when people would be in community because of the manifestation, the release of the new covenant blessing where the law of God is written on human hearts, not on tablets made of stone. And it's from people of all walks, all tribes, all tongues, all ethnicities, all backgrounds, all socioeconomic status Statuses, all those things. the church is the new covenant community of the Spirit. Now establishing that as our baseline of what the church actually is, then that establishes what we're supposed to do thereafter. And so what is the mission of the church? unambiguously? The thing precisely that we are trying to accomplish is as follows: make disciples of Jesus Christ. not grow beyond this size or that, not, uh, Raise a mission's war chest whereby... that No, 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 no. What we are precisely trying to accomplish is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Little Christs, we might say. Christians is what we also like to say. That's our mission. Then what are the ministries of the church? The ministries are, simply put, the ways we accomplish our mission. It, it's a very intelligent progression, the essence of the church is the new covenant community of the spirit. The mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. The ministries are how we make disciples of Jesus Christ. So sometimes that looks like worship. Sometimes it looks like life group Bible studies. Sometimes it looks like service projects. Sometimes it looks like international missions. That's the mission and the ministry of the church. The gifts of the church, now it gets granular. Now it gets personal. The gifts are simply how you accomplish the ministries. The ministries are how we accomplish our mission because of what the church is. So the Spirit of God at at regeneration, at new new birth, gives everybody one or more spiritual gifts to edify and equip and educate the bride and the body of Christ. Those are the gifts. And so that's the church in general. What are we specifically Bethel Bible Church called to in East Texas? As our elders have met and our staff have prayed, For, gosh, almost 40 years now, we have a very lengthy vision statement on our website. You can read that when you have absolutely nothing else to do. It's three or four wonderful paragraphs that we believe and we actually cling to. But we've distilled that down to three sort of portable vision statements. When we say vision, what we mean is it's what we do no matter what we're doing. When we're having worship, whether we're doing service, whether we're traveling on mission, whether we're doing a life group or a children's Bible study or a women's Bible study or a men's group, our vision is what we do no matter what we're doing. And so we have it broken into three categories. Number one, growing communities. And we mean that within the church, whether it's a Bible study group or a children's classroom or a youth fellowship or a life group or whatever it might be, growing communities. Because the church is the new covenant community of the Spirit. We want those communities to to forge further, to have fellowship. The second thing we say is we are about building leaders. It's all about influence and raising up people who will raise up people who will raise up people so that disciples of Jesus Christ are made, so that disciple-making disciplers are produced in the church. So growing communities, building leaders, and then finally living generously. That is to be our jersey. That's what we walk around town and in our communities. We are those people who give their lives away because we've been given the life of Jesus so fully, so generously. So growing communities, building leaders, living generously. That's our vision. No matter what we do, that's what we're doing. But then I get asked the question all the time, "Uh uh-huh, that sounds really sweet and that's really cute. That's a nice travel brochure. But what do you actually do? Okay, great question. It's also very simple. And it's nothing new under the sun. It's quite literally what the church has been doing for the last 2,000 years. And so we haven't really glitzed or glammed this up a whole lot. It's what the church is to have done for the last 2,000 years. Our strategy has three prongs to it. Number one goes like this, expository preaching. Because we believe in the inspired and inerrant and sufficient word of God, everything else hangs off of that. We believe that this book, not the ESV translation by Crossway Publishers, although they've done a good job. No, no, not this book, but God's holy, inspired, and and sufficient word. And so we teach God's word. We want to teach, as Paul told the elders from Ephesus on a beach in Miletus in Acts chapter 20, we want to teach the full counsel of God. And the only way we do that is by walking through all of Scripture, teaching the text in context. This book is not written to support my ideas and my axes to grind. It is about what does God think and say and then how do we apply that to our lives in this time and space. So our first strategy is expository teaching. That impacts how we do life groups, women's Bible studies, men's groups, youth ministry, children's ministry, even what we do in the nursery. Second strategy is the multi-site model. We commute to where the communities are. Our strategy has not been to build some massive, monolithic, centralized hub where everybody all over East Texas has to come and experience the same indigenous expression. Nope. We go into different pockets of East Texas and say, this is where your life and your community is. Jeremiah 29.7, seek the welfare of the city, for when the city prospers, you shall prosper. Build homes there, plant gardens, find wives for your sons. And I'm trying so hard on that last part. It's really, really tough. But we want to engage in the community. We want to invest our lives in the community. We're trying to find someone that, you know, is cogent and somewhat. We're trying. But we do that all over the communities of East Texas. That impacts our life groups. Our life groups are little indications of our multi-site strategy where we have life groups meeting in people's homes all over the city, that we have decentralized discipleship and decentralized elder shepherding leadership. We don't have just one central elder board that sort of hands down papal decrees from on high. No, there are deacons and elders and staff at this campus and at all of our campuses who love and lead and guide and guard the people of this campus. So our strategies, expository teaching, the multi-site model, and then very broadly, intentional missions. We don't give Uh, cooperatively to some massive central program or repository. We as Bethel, an independent, autonomous, non-denominational, conservative, Protestant, evangelical Bible church, we are very strategic in our missions. And there's four categories of missions that we go after. We want to be about unreached people groups, which are hard to reach, hence them being unreached. We want to go after international students, both here in Tyler and all over Texas and, and the nation, where international students come in, we want to give them the gospel and equip them to go back to their home countries where they can be then givers of the gospel. We want to be involved in church planting. This campus in particular is very involved in planting churches in Spain, both in Barcelona and in Girona, and in Milan, and in Sesto Calende, north of Milan, and in Mociano. We want to be planting churches in areas where there's not a thriving evangelical church. And then the fourth category is what we call local justice and generosity things that are going on in our community that need our resources, our time, attention, and prayer, things like the Bethesda Clinic, things like For the Silent that advocates for children in trafficking scenarios. Those are the things we do. That's our strategy. Nothing glitzy, nothing new, but to be about expository preaching, multi-site model, and intentional missions. That's who we are. That's what we're doing here because The church is the new covenant community of the Spirit, and we get the privilege of prayerfully discerning what does God have us to do in our context and setting with the people and the resources that he's given us. So with all of that as a run-up, I want to now pivot to one of the things that we do strategically, which is expository teaching. Last week, we opened up the Gospel of Luke in chapter 4, and we started looking at the life of Jesus, and Matt's already mentioned this. His temptation as he is called and led by the Spirit to go into the wilderness and to be tested. Last week, we looked at the life of Jesus and we said that Jesus is the man. And really, that's sort of cheating because that's the theme of the entirety of the gospel of Luke, is that Jesus is the man. Not just our righteousness, though he is, he's also our example. We're going to continue in Luke chapter 4 this morning, and we're going to see through this text, our big idea for the morning is connected to what we looked at last week. Our big idea for this morning's passage goes like this. Jesus gets it done. And I think sometimes we forget that. Jesus gets it done. Maybe not what we want done, but always what he wants done. And we're going to see that played out here at the back half of Luke chapter 4. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to dive into this text and see what God has for us. Father, would you, by your Spirit, illumine your words so that we, your people, could see what you see, know what you know, and love what you love. We pray, God, that you would bring to our hearts and minds the glory and the goodness of the gospel. And we pray all these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, it's always fun to preach through a passage from the gospels because it gives us a chance to just look and consider and really think through Jesus I don't know about your church experience or your background with spiritual growth, but you talk a lot about Jesus. You probably hear a lot about Jesus. But when we actually pause and we look at him, what was he like? Have you ever just allowed your heart to just beat out of your chest an infection for Jesus? Man, that guy, he's so great. He's so compassionate. He's so wise. He always does the right thing. He always says just the thing that I never say. He cares about people in a way that I just never really seem to. That Jesus, he's amazing. And that's how we want to go into a gospel, is looking at the life of Jesus and falling ever and ever and ever more deeply in love with Jesus because Jesus is the one who exegetes the Father. That's what John 1.18 says. He is the one who makes God known. What is God like? People all over the world through space and time have wanted to know, what's God really like? Jesus. He's good. He's compassionate, he's tender, he's amazing, he's wise, and he loves us. So we are in the gospel of Luke chapter 4. I'm going to begin reading in verse 14. Remind you that last week we walked through the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness that Matthew 4 talks about, that Mark 1 talks about. We're going to continue on here in Luke 14, beginning in verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Now, this is a super brief two-verse summary of the Galilean ministry of Jesus. It could have taken chapters and chapters and chapters, but Luke gets right to the point. And the Gospel of John tells us that Jesus actually stays in Jerusalem pretty soon after the temptation experience, that he stays and does some things in Jerusalem, like he cleanses the temple, he goes to a wedding feast in Cana, all those things. But Luke and Matthew and Mark tell us that it's just pretty brief. He goes up into the northern part of Galilee, and he begins to do signs and wonders, and he begins to teach, and he begins to speak, and his fame and his popularity increase. Luke will tell us 13 times in his gospel alone, 13 times that the popularity and the renown and the fame of Jesus increased. In Israel at that time, there are about 250 cities, some big, some small, but about 250 of them. And Jesus is becoming increasingly well-known and well-known. And we just get a very small summary of that here in these first couple of verses. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all, verse 15. Now, he wasn't being worshipped or glorified. He was being spoken well of. So we want to be careful not make this say more than Luke is intending it to say. He's being spoken well of. There's a little bit of a play on words here where Luke is referencing Psalm 45 where the teacher uh, has words that fall from his lips and he is glorified. Luke's setting us up that this Jesus, he's the one. It's happening. So we're seeing his influence. Verse 16, And he came to Nazareth. Oh, man. I don't know where your hometown is. Jesus, yes, was born in Bethlehem, goes to Egypt for a number of years, and then is brought out of Egypt with Joseph and Mary and goes to live and is reared and trained by his father Joseph in craftsmanship, masonry, and carpentry in Nazareth. It's his hometown. And every time he goes back to Nazareth, I get it, I'm from a little town up in the panhandle called Borger, And every time I drive into Borger, that old feeling of, oh, this is going to be bad. Can anything good come out of Borger? Short answer, no. It's the same idea here in Nazareth. You can go there to this day. There's not much in Nazareth. In fact, it's almost exclusively populated by Arab peoples. They don't think much of Jesus in Nazareth to this day. There's a church there, and there's a lot of hotels for tourists. Not much else. Nazareth was not very fancy. It's kind of set back in the hills. It's a backwater. It's about 20 miles to the west of Capernaum. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Jesus, this might shock you, was Jewish. And he still is. He never got over it. He's still Jewish. And he was a human being. And he went into their synagogues at the allotted time. He didn't just show up on a Tuesday and go, ha oh, let's see if they can find me. No, he went to where they were. He went in their synagogues, and he contextualized. He taught about himself from their passages that they would have known, from their experience. And though he was a relatively young man, he had been successful in gaining notoriety and respect and popularity so that he's able to walk in and be a teacher, though he has no rabbinic authority. He has no rabbinic training. He's a carpenter from Nazareth. And yet people knew this guy speaks and things happen. They had heard about his exploits and his signs and wonders in Capernaum. And people are beginning to wonder, this guy, could he be the one? But we have to also remember that there were many guys who had risen and fallen during Jesus' day. Before Jesus comes, there are other people who rise up. Achnoel, who said, I am the Messiah, and he gathered to himself a whole bunch of followers and led a revolt and then was summarily executed and skinned alive by the Romans. That's a bad day. Barkovka and all these other guys who would gather to themselves a and say, I am the Messiah, follow me, and some people would, and then they would be dead and stay dead and are still dead. So they're seeing that this Jesus, this carpenter from Nazareth, well, maybe it's him, maybe it's not. But they're beginning to think that he could be the one. They'd heard about what he had done with the 5,000 men being fed and the, the thousands on the other side of the lake that had gotten fed. They're beginning to wonder and ask the questions. So he's in their synagogues, and he's being glorified by all. Verse 16, And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom. See, we forget sometimes. I think Jesus just loved people. Even people that were going to disagree with him. Even people that didn't see things the way he saw them. Even people who had a different perspective, perhaps even politically. (sighs) I know it's hard for us to imagine, but just go with me on that. He loved to assemble with people, as was his custom. He went into the synagogue, and on the Sabbath day, that would be Saturday, and he stood up to read. So he's given the privilege to stand up and read from Torah, what they would do in those days. They would read a passage from Torah, from the Pentateuch, written by Moses, Genesis through Deuteronomy, to demonstrate and to depict this is what God did. This is what righteousness looks like. This is what is required of man. And then they would read a passage from the prophets to say this is what God will do. This is what God has done, what is expected of man, and this is what God will do. This is what we are to look forward to. So Jesus, as is his custom, Stands up to read. You would stand to read in those days. Those guys would sit down to teach. In the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And it just so happened to be the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. It just so happened. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. He's very deliberate, very intentional, very precise. He goes to the exact spot in Isaiah. And if you've ever happened to thumb through Isaiah... That's a long scroll, y'all. Isaiah is this marvelous book. It's sort of a mini Bible. Isaiah, well, it was written about 750 years before first advent, before the coming of Christ. So it's about 750 B.C., and when Isaiah writes it down or has it, you know, uh, scribed, there's no chapters, there's no verses in those Bibles, in those early books. And so it's a little bit coincidental, but Isaiah itself is a mini Bible. In our versions today, there are 66 chapters. Well, there's 66 books in our Bible. The first 39 books or chapters of Isaiah deal with sin and judgment. Very much like our Old Testament, 39 books that deal with sin and judgment. But the last 27 chapters of Isaiah deal with grace and the coming of Messiah. Just like our New Testament has 27 books that deal with grace and the coming of Messiah. And so Jesus being handed the scroll of Isaiah, flips through, flips through, flips through, flips through. And he comes exactly to the space where we're going to see something from Isaiah chapter 61. And they would have known this passage very, very well. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. I mean, can you imagine? No, really, can you? Because you're supposed to. I don't know if you've ever had the privilege of being in an actual synagogue, ancient or modern, but I want, to, I want you to get the scene. Luke, this physician who's an amazing storyteller, wants you to place yourself up against the wall and see this Jesus as he enrolls the scroll. And he reads from Isaiah 61. He says... I've been sent for the poor. The patokos is the Greek term. And it's not just, you know, you're down on your luck. Patokos means you're dirt poor. You, you, got, you can't even afford to pay attention. You're that poor. But it's not a quote about financial resources. It's the poor in spirit. Those who have absolutely nothing, they are bereft of righteousness and they know it. They don't think, well, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not perfect, but I'm, at least I'm better than that guy. No, 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 no. They are Potokos poor. They have zero righteousness. They look at God and they say, have mercy on me, a tax collector. That's the poor that Jesus is talking about. And I wonder, have you ever been there? Because some of the people in that synagogue knew exactly how that felt. And we're supposed to enter into that as well. Listen to what he quotes from Isaiah 61. He's appointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. And no, that does not mean that Jesus wants to walk through jails and release all of the convicts as has been recently preached because that would be very bad and very dangerous and not good. No, captives, not because they committed a crime, captives to their own sin and death, the the tethering of their own depravity. They cannot seem to escape themselves. They are the villain in their own story. Does anybody know what that feels like? Who will rescue me from this body of death, Paul asks in Romans. Jesus says, I have come to cut all the strings, all the tethers, all the bindings of all of your depravity. That's why I'm here. Hmm, how will they receive that? And the recover of sight to the blind. Oh, yes, Jesus healed some people who were physically blind, brought sight to some as a demonstration of what he would do, but he didn't restore sight physically to everybody just as an authentication of his ministry. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. To bring peace in a time of turmoil and trial and affliction. That's why I have come. To inaugurate the coming kingdom. It's not what they wanted to hear. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Some of your translations might say the, the, the year of Jubilee. Back in the Old Testament... Every seven years, the land was supposed to lay fallow and the land was supposed to rest so that agriculturally, the the crops would be bountiful moving forward and they were to trust God that he would provide for them during those first six years and the land would rest. How'd they do? Eh, Survey says, never once did they do it. And then every seventh, seven, there would be a year of Sabbath and then there would be a 50th year of Jubilee when all debts would be canceled. Can you just imagine Oh man, if all of your debt, your mortgage, your this, your that, all that was just canceled. All lands went back to their original owner. No matter how badly you had messed up to lose all your family's heritage, it would all go back to the original owner. All slaves would be released. You had sold yourself perhaps into indentured servitude, but you could now go back. You were free. How'd they do? Survey says They never once historically, by extra biblical records, did they ever actually do the year of Jubilee. Because they didn't trust God. And they really did believe, like all of us have a tendency to do, that it was up to them to feed themselves. But what Jesus is saying is, I have come. I am the man. And I get it done. Oh, I'm bringing jubilee. It's what your heart yearns for. It's what your life and your community craves, but you can't do it. I'm bringing it to you. I will implant it and impose it upon you. Jesus gets it done. And to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. Very conspicuously, if you know your Bible, Jesus, well, because you know he's the son of God. He can do this. He sort of misquotes Isaiah 61. In Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, he says, I have proclaimed the Lord's favor to preach to the poor, to the captive, to the, to the oppressed, and to announce the Lord's vengeance. But Jesus omits that bit. Oh, there will come a time when he will, in fact, come and announce the Lord's vengeance, but not yet. There is a window between his preaching to the poor and the release of the captive and the coming of vengeance. We hold to that. We call that the age of grace, the age of the church, the new covenant community of the spirit. Jesus intentionally leaves that bit out, and they're waiting for it. They kind of want to hear it, like, oh, you're going to proclaim vengeance on those darn dirty Romans. Oh, no, Jesus isn't going to do that. He's not going to say that rolled up the scroll gave it back to the tenant and he sat down and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him verse 21 and he began to say to them today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing um wow that is a very direct way of saying um i'm the messiah which is sort of insane i mean it would be like one of our 7th graders walking up and going excuse me i hate to interrupt but i'm the messiah that's sort of what happens here. Today, this has, been, this has happened in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Again, this is a Psalm 45 reference. And then someone goes, wait, 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 wait a second. Isn't this Joseph's boy? Yeah, they made me a coffee table. The leg fell off. What in the world? Hey, Messiah? Yeah, no, I don't, I don't think so. Isn't this Joseph's kid? And he said to them, He knows what their hearts are. He knows what they're thinking. He says to them, this Jesus guy, gosh, he just does things that I wish I would do. Listen to how he responds. Doubtless, he says, you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself, which is a polite Semitic way of saying, I know, what you want now is for me to prove it. I've just declared to be the Messiah. You want proof. Because they had heard about his signs and wonders in Jerusalem and in Capernaum. Doubtless, you're going to ask me to prove this. Physician, heal yourself. It's a little bit of a foreshadowing because also what we'll find out at the end of the gospel of Luke in chapter 23, verse 39, as Jesus is hanging on the cross, one of the thieves will say, if you are Messiah, heal yourself. So this is a foreshadowing of how it's going to go with Jesus. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Hey, you did it in Capernaum. This is your hometown. Now we like you. We sure would like some snacks, Jesus. Jesus. Jesus is like, I, I didn't come to offer you snacks or to give you a little stimulus. No, 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 no. I've come for so much more than that. And he said, Jesus answers, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Oh, it's a great line. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and, a, and six months and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. Back in Elijah's day, Jesus says, y'all remember, it was a bad deal. There was a famine, no rain for three and a half years. And there's a whole lot of widows in Israel. But you know who God went after? a gentile because Israel would not bend the knee Israel would not soften the neck they rebelled they would not repent and so God sends Elijah to a gentile woman the down and the out and then Elijah passes the mantle of his ministry to a guy named Elisha Jesus continues and there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha and none of them was cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian oh so when Israel failed and would not repent, God sent Elijah to a down-and-out Gentile woman. Israel would still not repent and bend the knee and soften the neck. God sent Elisha to an up-and-out Gentile man. Jesus' point is a foreshadowing. I'm going to get this done. You're not going to have me. You're going to reject me. And so I will go to the Gentiles as well. That doesn't usually go well. When you tell a Jewish gathering that their Messiah is for the Gentiles, that's usually when they want to pick up stones and throw them at your face at high velocity. Sure enough, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. You got to credit these folks. They can turn on a dime, yeah? Like, he's amazing. Just listen to what he says. It's awesome. We love that guy. Like, grace falling from his lips. Kill him. Kill him dead. Like, I've had sermons that way. I know how this feels, but not quite that intense. It's a pretty fast pivot. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. A little bit of a foreshadowing. They will reject, they will try to kill him, and ultimately they will succeed, but not yet. It's not his time. Jesus will get it done. You can go to this spot today, it's called Mount Precipice, just on the outskirts of Nazareth. And sure enough, if you were to fall off of that, well, that would be the last thing you said. Whee! Jesus, amazingly, here in verse 30, but passing through their midst, he went away. No, he didn't pull out a whole bunch of throwing stars and a whip in a chair. He just, it wasn't his time. He just walked off and left them all standing there like, what just happened? It's a wonderful story that Jesus all along, from before the foundations of the earth, knew his program, knew his purpose, and he loves his people. And Jesus gets it done. So three very quick things that we can take away from this. And when I say quick, I mean actually very quick for once. Three quick things that I hope are helpful as, I, as we walk around outside of this building and around in our world's. Number one goes like this. The Spirit is the source of strength. We've said it before. We're going to continue to say it as we're in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus is not merely our righteousness, though he is, and that's marvelous. He's also our example. Jesus is the man, but he laid aside his divine prerogative. and Everything he did, everything he said, everything he thought was in the intentional, volitional power of the Spirit. He withstands the temptation because he's led by the Spirit. What he says here in the synagogue in Nazareth is because he is in the Spirit. Now, that's not easy for you and I because you and I still struggle and wrestle with the sin nature. But we cannot fall into the trap of thinking, well, yeah, Jesus was great and all, but he was God. Jesus was 100% human, and he still is. The source of strength is the Spirit. I don't know if you've been watching the Olympics at all. And if you have, that's okay, there's grace for that. And if you haven't, that's okay, there's grace for that as well. But You'll hear the commentators every now and then after a wonderful performance say, wow, what an inspired performance, as though something just came on the weightlifter. Now, we know that the weightlifter has been preparing and practicing and planning and training and working and working so that in the moment of performance, it all comes together. And it's like they're a different person. In the same way Jesus has been preparing for all of his earthly life for now 30-something years and looking forward from eternity past, he's been planning and preparing. He knows the Word of God because he is the Word of God so that when the Spirit leads, he doesn't become a different person, but he does precisely what he's intended to do in the power, the loving leadership of the Spirit. The Spirit is the source of strength. Not you, not me. But we do get to train and to know his word, to be around his people, so that when we participate with what the Spirit is doing, incredible things actually do happen. I wonder if we ever actually expect that. The life of Jesus says that we should. Number two, if the Spirit is the source of strength, number two, Scripture is the source of seeing. I love the fact that not just Jesus, but Paul and Peter and all the other writers of the New Testament again and again and again will say, this is happening, it's that. Joel talked about it in chapter two. Micah talked about it in chapter four. Moses talked about it in Genesis three. It's happening. You guys, you guys, it's Jesus. It is impossible to know God apart from his son and it is impossible to know his son apart from his word. Can I say that as dogmatically and emphatically as I possibly can? Scripture is the source of seeing. We cannot make sense of our world. We cannot make sense of our God apart from Scripture. And I don't mean a cursory skim where you go, oh, look at that, David killed the lions. And the, No, 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 there, there's a whole lot more there. Daniel and the ark and all those great, no, 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 no. Read. That's why we do expository teaching. We want to teach the text in its context so that we can extract meaning and apply it to our lives here and now. Scripture is the source of seeing. And then third, The Savior is the source of success. Now, save your emails. When I say success, I don't mean material prosperity, happiness, and wealth. No, I don't mean that at all. I'm talking about the program of God with every believer and his church. Jesus gets it done. When we align our projects and goals to his, we can have peace and joy and fulfillment knowing that Jesus will accomplish what he sets out to do. Jesus gets it done. Along the way... Our success is not any outcome. Our success is actually drawing increasingly close to our Lord and to our Savior. We look at his life, and we love him more and more and more, and we long for his appearing. See, Jesus gets it done. And I don't know where all of you are this morning. Maybe you're naming and you've just, you're just riding high. You're a, a powerful, wealthy person who's got no issues yet. But Jesus has come to release you from whatever will afflict you. Maybe you're the, the, the woman in Zarephath who is just in a down and out, horrible, desperate situation. Jesus comes to preach release to the captive and the poor. And Jesus gets it done. So if this morning, I want to be as direct as I can. If you're not a believer, if you know a lot about God perhaps in the church and Jesus and maybe even Bartimaeus who was once blind, well, you don't know Jesus I want to invite you to believe, and when I say believe, I mean you give in to the call to place all of your weight, all of your being on the truth and the reality that Jesus is the Son of God, that he takes away the sin of the world, that he lived, he died, he satisfied the demands of the law with a perfect life, he satisfied the wages of sin, which is death when he died, and he rose again, meaning God accepted it, and he will come again. And in the meantime, we get to make little me's of Jesus. This Jesus gets it done, and I pray that you and I will know him increasingly. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the life and the ministry of Jesus as we see it inaugurated here in Luke chapter 4. Father, I do pray if there's anyone here who does not know you, who is not indwelled by your spirit, who is not encouraged by the spirit illumined, reading of your word. Would you move irresistibly in their lives and lead them into a saving knowledge of your son, Jesus? Father, we do thank you for the good news, the awesome announcement, the great story of what you have done in Christ to redeem us to yourself and to one another, that we get to live in this new covenant community of your spirit. And so, Father, if there's someone on the outside of that community, would you draw them in by grace? For the rest of us, Father, Would you remind us that we never grow nor go beyond the gospel. It is the power of life day on day on day to relationships, to encounters, to everything we think and do and feel. Thank you for the gospel. We pray all these things, Father, the only way we can in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.